Hey guys, October 29th, Mission Day, one of my favorite days at White's Ferry Road. One of the guys I want to tell you about that we support is one of my best friends in the world, Isaac Day. This is a man who puts it on the line every single day. He works in countries that are predominantly Muslim, but he's putting the message of the gospel out there in an incredible way. He started a new school. They got students ready. All we need is your help to make sure that we keep this guy going. October 29th, plan now, start praying, give freely. Home to 362 million people in 18 countries, West Africa is also home to One Kingdom Ambassador Isaac Day, who serves the war-torn region with opportunities for empowerment, poverty alleviation, agriculture instruction, leadership development, and biblical worldview training. His innovative style of leadership is leaving a legacy that will impact West Africa for now and eternity. Agriculture should be given a priority. So for me, if the national government does not see agriculture as a priority, if they don't have the eye to see the importance and, and the benefit agriculture can bring to, bring to the nation, then we as a people of God should not be blind to that fact. To restore is to get people to understand the original position that God actually placed us as a church, as a people, and as his creation. But allow me to use just these two words to express my appreciation and gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yo, thank you. Thank you. Good morning, church family. So you can see there our missions day is Sunday, October the 29th. Let me put some uh, specifics there. Our goal is to raise... $160,000 to support our missionaries worldwide. One of those guys that was profiled this morning, Isaac Day, I'm not sure if you can make out some of what he's doing. He's got a preaching school, a Bible institute, that is also an agricultural school. What he was saying on the video is uh, the government of Liberia, they don't um, prioritize agriculture. And so the government's actually giving people land to rent for pennies, and he rents this land, sets up these agricultural um, areas where they where they plant crops and and develop you know uh, uh, goods, and they use these agricultural kind of centers as the hub of evangelism in the areas where they are located. So this guy is one of a number of very creative thinking, outside the box thinking. One Kingdom uh, World Radio speakers that is doing really incredible things in a really, really difficult place. Isaac Day is one of those guys, just like Alan said, my family and I are praying. I hope that you're praying about how we can contribute to the message of Jesus Christ being spread throughout the world through guys like this. That's what grit is about. It's about the toughness required to do the work of God when the work of God is tough. And life has just a way of kicking us in the teeth. And everybody under the sound of my voice has been kicked in the teeth. Some of you got the missing teeth to prove it, right? Can I get an amen, somebody? Okay, praise the Lord. Uh, Life has a way of kicking us in the teeth. And you've been kicked in the teeth, and so have I. And the way we get through those moments is by grit, is by this kind of toughness that helps us push through when the going really gets tough. 
The best kind of grit comes from God. The kind of grit worth having comes from God. And a man's life that we've been covering that has a lot of grit is King David from from the Old Testament. I covered David and Saul and some of the differences in in how they get their start. Last week, uh, Nathan covered David and Goliath. Took a lot of toughness to face the giant. Um, today I want to, I want to talk to you about how David was conformed in the cave of Adullam. That's in 1 Samuel 22. So you can turn there, but I'm going to, I want to give you some context to set this up. And I want to, I'm going to speak to you this morning about how God conforms you and conforms me when we're in our cave moments, just like He conformed King David. And, and if, we'll, if we'll allow God to conform us in the cave, we'll be tougher as a result. So um, what, what happens in 1 Samuel 17 is David takes on the giant and he wins. And everybody in David's life, all the people um, in, the, in, the, in, in Israel are praising David. They're, they're all feeling very excited about David, what he can do, his courage, his toughness. And there's a guy who's currently king named Saul that feels threatened by David. And so in 1 Samuel 19 and verse 1, Saul tells his son, a guy named Jonathan, and all the people in his kind of court that he wants to kill David. So 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 1, Saul tells his son Jonathan and all the attendants, all the attendants to kill David. David goes from hero to humbled in just a couple of pages. This guy who killed the toughest, most brutal warrior on the planet, Goliath, now is, is a hunted, wanted man by King Saul. From hero to humbled. And isn't that the way life kicks us in the teeth? Right after our mountaintop moments, right when we're on a high, spiritually or emotionally or relationally, we get blindsided. And now the people we felt we could trust, we feel like we have to run from. It doesn't stop there. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1, David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Difficult times in life are often unexpected and often seem unfair or unmerited or unwarranted. In David's case, that's that first text we read. He's, he's blindsided by Saul now who wants to kill him. He goes to plead his case to Saul's son, Jonathan, saying, man, I haven't done anything. This is, this is nothing that I've done to merit this. And still he's a hunted, wanted man. So he, so he flees again. First uh, Samuel chapter 21 and verse 10. I'm kind of skipping through here to give you guys some context. The Bible says that day David fled from Saul and went to Ashish king of Gath. Maybe if I can't find refuge and help uh, in, in my own city, I'll be able to find refuge and help in my other city. What ends up happening here is these guys in Gath are like, wait a second, isn't this David who killed Goliath that people say Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And David hears these guys in Gath talking about how strong and courageous and brave he is, and David becomes afraid again. 
And that's the other way moments in life that are tough seem to happen. Is the places we seek for refuge often do not offer refuge. This place David fled, which was to Gath, ends up being a place that he also becomes fearful that his life is at stake. So in, in 1 Samuel 22, this is the text where I want to develop our sermon from this morning, verses 1 through 3. If you, if you read the context there in 1 Samuel 21, David ends up pretending like he's a madman foaming at the mouth. The king of Gath says, get this guy out of my sight. David left Gath in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 3, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So the premise this morning that I want you to remember is in the cave you get grit. It is in the cave moments of your life that God develops the kind of toughness in you required to win in the life he's called you to live. In the cave, you get grit, which is the toughness required to win in the life that God has called you to live. Now, none of us actually physically dwell in a cave. Uh, I should put an asterisk there. When my wife and I moved to Monroe, we lived in an apartment that was mold infested and there were no windows to, uh, that, you, that could be open to reveal outside lighting. And we called our living room, which was dark and moldy and humid. The humidity was just such a surprise to us. We moved here. We called it the cave. And um, so we didn't have cabin fever at our little apartment. We got cave fever, and it was really difficult. So none of us technically live in a cave, although sometimes in life maybe it feels like the place we're living is a cave. But we all live through cave-like seasons in our life. So I want to just briefly talk to you about the nature of the cave, okay? A cave in your life is a season of your life in which it feels like your very life is threatened or it's at stake. Let me give you some things that come, come to me on a weekly basis, working with families in ministry. Cave moments for some people are, are unexpected losses of loved ones, especially children. The unexpected loss of a loved one, especially a child, gives, gives the people who are experiencing that kind of a cave season the sense that they're, they're not going to survive. Another cave moment is if a loved one, a very close loved one, uh, is struggling with a mental or physical malady that feels like it's destroying them and you can do nothing but watch. You've tried and tried and tried and tried and nothing feels like it works and it feels like your literal heart is being ripped out of your chest to families who are involved in those situations, either because of a physical, a loved one's ill with cancer, or a mental, an addiction, a loved one's depressed to the point of feeling suicidal. Those, those moments for loved ones feel like their hearts being ripped out of their chest. Uh, I can't help but mention some of the Miramax, Weinstein, sexual abuse scandal 
which is totally disgusting and sickening and repulsive. But sexual abuse is one of the kinds of situations that is a cave moment. It feels like my life is over. Something has happened to me that I wonder if I can live through. Can I get through the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, having lived through this kind of a thing? And all of those women that were victimized by uh, Weinstein, uh, allegedly, although wisdom is held in the counsel of many, when you see that many testimonies confirming the same thing, I think this guy's definitely got some very sick issues going on. When you, when, you, when you live through something like that, you're, you're wondering those kinds of things. Can I survive this? Can, can I get through it? Physical abuse, sexual abuse is that kind of a season where it feels like I may not survive this. Can I survive it? Domestic violence, emotional abuse, all of these kinds of things create this sort of cave-like season. And it is not God's will for things like sexual abuse or physical abuse to occur. But in your cave moment, God can develop a toughness in you that helps you win in the life he's calling you to. So I'm going to keep coming back to that point over and over and over again. Second thing I want to say about the nature of caves. Caves do not discriminate. David was anointed king at this moment in time in his life. He was the next go-to guy. He was the blue chip recruit from high school. He was the guy that people thought was going to win. He had direction. He killed the giant. He was the hero of the land. And in no time, he experiences his cave moment. It doesn't matter if you're the hero or if you're already humbled. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or if you're uneducated, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're old or if you're young. Cave moments do not discriminate. There's no way to avoid cave kinds of moments in life. Moments where it feels like the season you are living in is ripping your heart out of your chest and you don't know if you'll survive it. Another truth about caves, the nature of caves, caves don't show mercy. That's kind of what I was taking you through in the beginning there. This cave that David finds himself in was unexpected. It felt unjustified. And nowhere he ran for help felt like it could, it, it could relieve him of the situation. So he ends up in his cave moment. He gets kicked while he's down to a degree. And I think sometimes that's, that's what we live through in life. It feels like we get kicked while we're down. We're struggling with this one situation and then a family member falls ill. Or we're dealing with this situation and another situation equally as stressful pops up. And it just feels like we cannot get a break. And in those situations, the cave feels like it will push you to your limit. The cave's definitely going to push you out of your comfort zone. In life, when we go through difficult seasons or things that are very stressful, what we want to do is we want to compartmentalize those things and just not talk about them and do the John Wayne technique like I talked about week one and break off the arrowhead after being shot multiple times and keep on fighting the battle. And so many of you and so many of the people that I work with day in and day out are doing that kind of thing. So, so, so to get pushed to your limit, often we got to go back to those same points of pain and remove those arrowheads and do the work required to really deal with those original sources of pain to really be able to move past it. But the cave will definitely push you to your limit. So in the middle of the cave, God, a couple of things are happening here, right? The first thing 
is that Satan is trying to discourage you. In your cave, Satan wants you to feel alone. He wants you to feel isolated. He wants you to feel forgotten about. He wants you to feel powerless, helpless, and hopeless. In the cave, the enemy is trying to discourage you. He wants you to, he wants you to give up, sit down, and not think that the situation you're dealing with will ever improve. He's actively working to discourage you. The enemy's also actively working to get you into a cave so that he can discourage you there. The second thing that's happening in the cave is that God is trying to develop you. In the cave, the enemy, Satan, is trying to discourage. He wants you to give up. He wants you to feel hopeless. He wants you to feel helpless. He wants you to feel powerless. He wants you to feel forgotten about, isolated, and lonely. But God is trying to develop you in your cave moment. He wants to give you some strength. I'm going to talk about some of this stuff in just a minute. But God God really wants to grow you. What we're talking about this morning is He wants to conform you into the image of Jesus in the cave. God can use any pain, any struggle, any difficulty, and any horrendous evil that has ever happened in your life to grow you in some way. No evil or misery or pain under God's authority is useless. None of it is senseless. None of it, none of it can't be used to help toughen you so you can win at the life God's called you to live. God's trying to develop you. I, I want to say something that I don't have it written down, but, but I do want to say something about this. Sometimes in our cave moments, we're trying to destroy our own selves. Satan's trying to discourage us, but God's trying to develop us, and we're steadily trying to destroy us. And that's some of the reason why we end up in the cave. We, we become Lord of our own lives. We use the freedom to choose right from wrong that God's given us all to choose wrong. And in choosing wrong over and over again, we do a pretty good job of destroying our own selves and setting ourselves up for our cave moments. And I I want you to be cautious of how you're looking at this. Sometimes, yes, the enemy is trying to discourage. God's always trying to develop. But sometimes you may be sabotaging your own self by being in denial about the vices and the secrets and the sinfulness in your own life. So what is God God really doing in the cave? What, What does he do? How does he conform us? I want to I want you to write down two psalms that we believe David wrote while he was in the cave of Adullam. So at some point in his life, after David's in his cave moment, he writes two psalms that give us some insight into what God did in David's life when he was in the cave. What, what, David, what was going through your mind? We can't ask him that, but we are given a couple of psalms. The first psalm is Psalm 142. I want you to write that down. And I think it sheds light on at least two things that God always does to his people when they are in their cave moment. That season of life that feels like my very life or existence is threatened. Psalm 142 is where I want to go right now. And I want to say this. In the cave, 
Devotion is always formed. Devotion is formed in the cave. When I'm saying devotion here, what I'm meaning is God is calling you more deeply into a prayerful-like communication and communion with Him. Devotion is formed in the cave. Psalm uh, 142, verse 1, the Bible says this, I cry aloud to the Lord, I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. So David, David's written this psalm at some point after he's in the cave of Adullam. And the first verse that he records is that I didn't look to go deeper into the cave to find a place of hiding and refuge. I didn't look outside the cave to see if the people who were pursuing me were still there. I didn't look around me in the cave to see if I could establish a habitable dwelling place and survive right here for the rest of my life. I didn't look back. I didn't look out. I didn't look around. I looked up to the God of heaven and earth and cried aloud to him for mercy first. That's exactly what God's first priority for you in your cave moment is. He wants to develop within you a devotional prayer life to him in your cave season. So wherever you're at in in, in your life's journey, whether you're uh, just coming out of a cave, you're in the middle of a cave, or you're fixing to go into a cave based on what's happening, the first thing I want you to know is in the cave, God's intent is to develop your devotion to him. He wants you to pray for him. That's the first thing the enemy is going to try to cause you to doubt as he attempts to discourage you. He's going to say things like, God's not hearing your prayers. God's not hearing your prayers. Or he's going to say, if God hears your prayers, he's not going to do anything about the prayers you pray. And usually what the enemy does at this point is to try to twist your theology around to weaken the influence your prayer has on God. And I hope you caught that. Usually the enemy's going to try to twist your theology around and say, you know, God's, God's are, he already knows what's going to happen. Because he knows what's going to happen, your prayers aren't going to change what he already knows is in the future. And, and nothing in life can, can help with the situation you're dealing with. That's a lie. In Isaiah 38, we don't have time to go there. A man named Hezekiah is in his cave moment. He's sick. And Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, you're fixing to die. God told me to come tell you to get your house in order. Hezekiah prays to the Lord. Now, why would you pray if a prophet of God came to tell you you're fixing to die? That seems like it would pretty much be written in stone. Hezekiah prays and God says, Hezekiah, I'm moved by your prayer. And because of your prayer... I'm going to add years to your life and to show you, I'm going to cause the sun uh, to fall back and the shadow to move up the steps of the palace to confirm my change of thinking as far as your prayers are concerned. Prayer changes things in your life, friends. And the first thing the enemy wants to do is to discourage you into thinking your prayers are useless and powerless and God's not going to hear them and he's not going to do anything as a result of your prayers. That's a lie. Okay, the second thing that happens here that I want to talk about, Psalm 142 still in verse 6, dependence is formed in the cave. Devotion is formed in the cave. That's our prayer life. 
The second thing that, that God intends to form or develop within us is our dependence on Him. <clears throat> Most of the time in the cave, we rely on our own intellect or our own strength to get us out of the cave. Most of the time in life, that's where we look to first. God wants you to remember that it's most important to look to Him first, His power first, His strength first, and His plan first. In Psalm 142 and verse 6, David said, Listen to my cry. There's his devotion again. For I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. What does David say is required for his rescue? Not his own strength. And David was a guy who just defeated the biggest, baddest warrior on the planet, Goliath of Gath, this Philistine who the whole armies of Israel wouldn't even take on toe-to-toe. This is like winning the UFC championship belt in every weight class and then going, God, you know what? Without you, I can't defeat the enemy standing in front of me today. That requires a complete and total dependence on God. David messed up a lot. Many of us haven't even done anything as crazy as like pretending to be insane in the presence of an enemy king to get us out of there, right? Before that, he lies to a, to a priest and says, hey, Saul sent me here. He told me not to tell you anything about what's going on. He said, give me food and supplies and then I got to get on the road. That was a lie. He lied to a priest of God. So what makes him, God, God calls David a man after his own heart. What makes David a guy who's a man after God's own heart? I think it's this. David knew God's power and, his own limit, and David's own limitation and was totally dependent on him, sought the Lord in these kinds of situations, really believed that God had what it took to do what David's requesting here. Rescue me, God, for those who pursue me are too strong for me. But I know, God, in your strength and by your spirit, I can find the strength to be delivered. The other psalm that David wrote in the cave is Psalm 57. And the last thing I want to mention here is that daring is formed in the cave. Devotion, a prayerful communion with God, is formed in the cave. Dependence is formed in the cave. A seeking to be rescued by the power of God and not my own power. Admitting my lack of strength and affirming God's strength. But also daring. Daring is what we might call courage. Courage. And in Psalm 57 and verse 7, David says this. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Many of us in in our cave moments could not have sung and made music. And that sounds kind of paradoxical. When my life feels like it's threatened, how, how, how can I find a song? But David's heart was steadfast because he took courage in the strength of God as a result of the prayers he prayed to God. And David knew God's strength because of what happened at, with Goliath. And David knew the effectiveness of prayer. And when we get those two things right, then we develop a daring, a type of courage that doesn't make sense given our situation. So we ask David, how did you have a steadfast heart? How were you able to find a song 
in the middle of this cave moment. And David would say, that wasn't about my strength. It was about the strength and power of God that comes from my devotion and prayerful communication to him. Some, some scholars note the significance of this text in its parallel to the life of Jesus Christ. Who spent a few days in a tomb, his cave moment, and by the strength and power of God was freed from the cave. And who are the kind of people that seek after Jesus that really need him? It's the same kind of people that, that sought out and found David in, in his moment. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, Jesus would say. It's the sick. It's the debtors. It's the downtrodden. It's the people who are messed up that sought David out in the cave. And isn't that how we feel in our cave moment? We feel like debtors. We feel desperate and we feel downtrodden. And if that's you this morning, I want you to be encouraged by two fellow cave dwellers. The first is the subject of our text. It's David. This is a guy who knew what it feels like, knew what it felt like to spend some time in a cave. And more importantly than David, our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you this text on the screen. This is from Luke's Gospel. I'm in chapter 24 here. After Jesus has risen, the people who are coming to the tomb find an angel of the Lord who tells them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus isn't in the cave anymore. He's not here. He's risen. And followers of Jesus don't remain in their caves for very long either. Be encouraged by that. And be challenged by that to follow the cave dweller whom no cave could hold, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray to dismiss our service. After I do, I ask you to stand. If you, if you have a need in your life, I invite you to come forward. We who are the broken, the debtors, and the downtrodden want to surround you as we all seek after Jesus more and more in each of our lives. So if you're in a cave moment or struggling with anything, or if you just need prayer because there's a transition coming up in life, we invite you to come forward this morning and we want to pray with you. Bow with me if you don't mind. Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the encouragement that we find there. God, I ask that you would just move on any hearts that feel like they're in their cave moment. God, help them become more devoted to you in a prayerful communication with you. Help them become more dependent on you, admitting they're not powerful, but you are. And in doing those two things, they find courage to face the cave season in strength. God, thank you so much for, for our Lord Jesus who defeated every cave for every human being on earth by being raised from the dead and dying in our stead so that we could have life in him. I ask that any who need encouragement through Jesus our King to be encouraged this morning in his name. Amen. Please stand while together we sing.